you'd want to step back and just see people enjoying themselves. People laughing, people just sharing a moment with their friends or loved ones or whatever it is. But for me, that's probably the biggest thing is people having a great time and just an experience. And they go, oh, this, this is great. And it sort of feels like, you're, you know, you're traveling in France, but just in, in your local area. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The last two years have had their challenges, but as we're opening up and getting back on track, we're seeing a throng of new openings, diving deeper into real experiences inspired by the great things of yesteryear and full of promise of what's to come. Sebastian Lutor is the culinary director of Etimon Projects, owners of Lulu Bistro. Sebastian, how are you? Good yourself. Good. Well, what's it like opening a restaurant in the environment that we find ourselves in? Oh, you know, opening a restaurant is already difficult. And I think, you know, during it, during these times is, it's about six times more difficult, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes a lot longer and, you know, obviously everybody knows about the staffing issues that we're all having. It's, you know, nothing's easy, to be honest. And even from a build perspective, you know, materials or just the supply chain of anything is difficult. So, it's, yeah, it's been enjoyable times. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the project that's in uh, Lavender Bay. Where, where, what made you choose that site and create uh, this the bistro there? So, look, it all started. We had a couple of sites, to, to spaces, areas to, to sort of look at. And when we first looked, there was two spaces that we looked at one we thought could work for a restaurant and the other space we thought, oh, we could do something interesting here from a retail perspective because it was more front-facing to the road. So as we were sort of looking at the area and looking of, you know, what concept do we want it to do, obviously an all-day sort of dining was quite clear of what we wanted to do for the area. And then I think the other side, the retail space, we thought, you know, we wanted to do a bakery, I think, at the start. Um, and then that's how sort of the project came alive. You know, we started looking at, you know, what kind of food we wanted to do. And I thought, you know, obviously being French and we were quite passionate about French food. We thought a French bistro would be great doing an all day. And then next door, you know, we wanted to do a boulangerie. Um, but in my mind, you know, I grew up in France and, you know, I, you finish school and you could still go home and get a fresh baguette where in Australia, you know, there's, you know, you finish work, you can't, there's nowhere to get a fresh piece of bread. So I wanted to do a boulangerie that was still open when it was 7 p.m. and people could still come and get a fresh baguette. So to be able to do that as well, that's where I've sort of thought of let's do a, a traiteur and a boulangerie together. So that retail space, you walk in, there's a bakery element, there's also the traiteur element. Um, so, you know, at least you can still come at 7 p.m. and get a roast chicken and grab a slice of parfait and still get a fresh baguette. Or in the mornings, you could still come down and get a coffee and a croissant. And so that way, just it, it, it felt it was used the whole way through. Does that make sense? Mm. In, in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, French bistros were all over Sydney in a real part of uh, the culinary landscape. And then um, modern Asian and uh, influenced and really came to the fore. And we kind of lost a lot of the French bistros, but there's been a renaissance. What do you think has driven that sort of focus on French food again? Look, I don't know. Look, I think at the last five years, it's been Italian. So I think it feels like it's going back to sort of 
basic, humble flavour some food. So Nitain's very, you know, it's very produce driven, it's fresh, it can be fresh and, you know, pastas. I think, you know, we've lost that carbonara style. It was a cream. It's it's sort of it's coming to what the Italians how how they do it. And I think French is just becoming that, you know, basics of French cooking it was, you know, that French technicals. So I feel like it's coming back, yes, agree. I want to explore all of that shortly, but you mentioned you grew up in France. Take take us back there to when you were young. Uh, what was food like and what role did it play in your family? So I grew up in a little town called Saint-Germain, so it's probably about 50 k's off Lyon. And look, my dad's a pastry chef. I, I sort of grew up in a, a little patisserie store. So my, you know, my... My youth was sort of watching my dad baking cakes and me eating them and licking the side of the bowls. And and also, you know, like I, I still remember is, you know, I used to serve, I was quite a young boy and I'd be serving the customers. Customers would come to me and say, hey, can you get grab me a croissant? And I'd look for the crispy edges and I'd look for ex- exactly what I would eat. Um, so, you know, food's always been part of my childhood, if that makes sense, um, and especially from, a, you know, that patisserie style. Next door was a, a boulangerie as well. So, you know, I've always been around it. Um, Christmas, you know, if I do spend Christmas with the family, my brothers are Somalia, so you can imagine the, the Christmas dinners. They're a little bit crazy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, it's always been part of um, my childhood, how I grew up. I can't let you go. That sounds like a pretty wild and interesting Christmas. Can you tell us about a feast and and what sort of experience your families have at Christmas? Oh, so I was back in France was it two years ago, just before the COVID started, and well, basically it's my mum trying to trying to want to cook dinner for all of us, but she'll get she ended up getting pushed out. It's me sort of taking over, or my dad, or even my brother wants to get involved and. It just it goes on for hours, and we just you know sit around the table cooking. It's not we wouldn't do big dinners. We'd probably do little testers or things because we'll be sitting around and drinking all different types of wines, and that's pretty much like that goes on for about four or five hours for Christmas Eve. We celebrate Christmas Eve more in France than we do for lunches, but yeah, that's that would be Christmas at our family. You've got a particularly uh, strong Australian accent for for a <laughs> Frenchman. Uh, what what lured you to Australia? When did you come over? So I came here. So my dad, obviously being a patissier, he came. He was sort of spoken to and looked to come and and do a, a little uh, patisserie here in Sydney when I was I was eight years old in 1989, if I remember correctly. Um, and yeah, look, but that was the first couple of years. He opened a chocolate shop in Double Bay and, look, it did do really well. I think, you know, at the time, nobody knew. I don't know. I just thought I thought it was probably too early in the time, like, you know, great little chocolates and stuff like that. It's just Australia. I don't think Australia was ready for it. So he, we did that for a couple of years and then we weren't too sure what to do if we were to go back to France or not. But then my dad obviously started working in hotels and being sort of a head pastry chef in a few hotels in Sydney, like the Hyatt in King's Cross. He went. He went to the Park Lane um, when you know Dietmar and Liam Tomlin were there, and sort of that's how sort of you know me getting involved in cooking sort of started as well because I did work experience. My dad sort of uh, sent me to Liam to do a bit of work experience, so that's how I sort of started as well. So that was our start to Australia. Take us back to that first experience in an actual commercial kitchen with with Liam Tomlin. Well, do you have any stories of what that was like? Oh, yeah. I think quite full on. I think um, 
So I started, it was at Cassis, it was for two weeks and it was actually happening the same time that Liam was moving to bank. So I started off, I did a couple of days of Liam and then there was the new head chefs coming on board and it was a little bit, it was a disaster to be honest. Not in a bad way, but it's just, you know, starting me as an apprentice or not even an apprentice, just getting involved in the kitchen and just seeing the change of staff because some staff were working at Cassis and Liam was taking them all to bank and there was the new new staff coming down and it was just a bit, you know, it was it was quite full on. But, you know, my dad being who he is just said, keep your head down. <laughs> You've spent some time at some pretty incredible restaurants, um, Tetsuya's, the Ledbury. Uh, what, what sort of impact did they have on you? Um, look, it's, it's funny, you know, you look back and each different chefs will have different impact on you. You know, if I look at Tetsuya's, I think that, you know, the flavours, the way he balanced flavours and the way he is with just keeping things so simple and so flavoursome, you learn great things from him. Brett, you obviously would learn, you know, I've never seen anyone work so hard and so determined, so you learn that kind of stuff. I've also worked, you know, there's a chef called Olivier Edzer. I've never worked with a French chef who has the, the knowledge of, he was like an encyclopedia. He knew everything. He knew all the classic sources. Just working along these people, you just pick up different things, if that makes sense. Um, so everyone, yeah, everyone will have different influences, I'd say, for me. Is, it, is there a period of time um, that really set you on the trajectory to, to find your own voice as a chef that you can, you can share? Yeah, look, I, I suppose in France when I was at the Pyramid, um, worked alongside Olivier Elzel, who's currently in Hong Kong. He's got a two-star. Um, he's, I don't know, at the start he was very dominant, but you sort of he taught you how to grow individually, how to make decisions. I think that's the most important thing in the kitchen is learning and knowing when it's time to make the right decision. And that's when you sort of start to look into a management role, if that makes sense. I'm able to manage the team. I'm, managed, I'm, I'm able to, you know, coming back in, in France, the – the structures in kitchens are quite strict. You know, you'd start as a demi and you go as a chef de party or, you know, sometimes even so as a commie. But you, you move up the rank really slowly, you know, and I feel like, you know, Olivia was that kind of person to sort of bring me up as a sous chef and giving me freedom and letting me expose myself as a chef and as a manager. So probably that that would probably be the, best, the, the biggest one for me. One of the interesting things about your career is that sort of the smaller scale restaurant that you were part of and then that move to look, looking after sort of big brigade in, in big groups. What's, what was the difference and how different is that shift to deal with as a, as a chef and manager? Look, for, for me, I, you know, once for me it's numbers and structure. So once you, you know, if you've got a structure in place for 100 covers or 200 covers, it sort of starts, it just becomes, you just need more staff. And you, it, I don't know, I see maths and I see structure working very well together for the volume and non-volume, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so that's the way I, I would look at it. So obviously, you know, I, I did Newport and the volume and the numbers there, it's, it's it, it, you know, outside you could do 2,000 people walk through in a day. Wow. It was chaotic. It was good, good fun. Give us some examples from a food perspective. How do you maintain uh, the the standard and the integrity of the product when you're doing such volume? Uh, some serious training and making sure you got the right equipment. I always say the right tools to be able, so you got to give the staff the right the right tools to be able to succeed. So 
making sure that you've got the right equipment. The, everything's got to be right. Obviously, you're going to be able to train the people right and just give them everything they need to be able to succeed. You can't ask people to do something without the right tools. Tell us a bit about your cooking um, at the moment. Uh, Lulu's is uh, leaning on your French history um, and your background. Um, tell us a bit about your cooking and and. and sort of what typifies it look you know it's funny when you know me and billy were talking billy's going to ease the head chef we're talking about the menu we, we, i've always wanted to do french food but it just needs to be lighter and i think sydney has influenced me to to cook that way is we don't eat you know a fish that's got full reduced cream and you walk out you're just stuffed i think lulu the influence of lulu is just keep it's French. We want it to be technical, but simple on the plate. And we don't want it to be heavy. We don't want you to walk out and, you know, feel like you can't, you know, you're staffed. So we're really, we're very, you know, Billy and I have just been really clear on the menu. Just let's keep things light, simple and fresh and, you know, lots of technique into it. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I hate to call it like this, but, you know, it's just like the, Sydney has influenced that French cooking for me that way of just keeping things a lot lighter and fresh. Are there challenges in making French cuisine lighter? And do you have an example of a dish or two where um, you've managed to do that? Well, for example, here we're doing a, like a John Dory fussy with like a, a, a squallet mousse and wrapped with spinach, but we're just doing a champagne velouté. But it's, you know, we're not reducing the velouté too far. It's just light with little drop at the end to just freshen it back up and just, just it's not, you don't expect it to stick to the, to the plate, if that makes sense. Mm. You, you mentioned the influence of your father. Is, is there any sort of lessons that he's taught you about the trade? Yeah, in pastry, 100%. Everything, to be honest. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'd look, I still talk to him now. He still sends me his recipes or he still sends me things, to be honest. So, yes. Do, do you have any uh, stories or examples that, that speak of that? Oh, at the moment, I'm trying to think now, at the moment. I don't want to give him credit for anything, do I? <laughs> um, look, at the moment, look, we haven't put anything from, from him, but look, I think it's more from a technique point of view or just how to, how to do it in a way, I think, if that makes sense. Because at the moment here, we're, we're just working with, yeah, I don't know how to explain this, but, you know, we're, he guides me in a sort of way or goes, here's some ideas and then I'll, I'll work my way through it, if that makes sense. French cuisine has influenced many other cuisines across the globe. Um, what do you love about French cuisine? Are there, are there any dishes that are really, like, um, important to you? What I love about French cuisine is I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's a few cuisines who do it, but just re respecting the product. Um you know, you can have an amazing roast chicken just done so simply and just the great seasoning and that's that's enough. Um, and I think, you know, I think probably what the French do best rather than any other culinary uh, is sauces. Like for me, sauces is the flavour of, like that's what makes the dish. So a great jus or a great velouté or just a great vinaigrette or anything like that will be the thing that um, – really makes French food for me stands out. There's been an inability to uh, travel overseas for all of us uh, over the last couple of years. What, what sort of impact has the last couple of years had on you given your roots in France and that inability to travel as well? Yeah, look, I was travelling just when COVID hit. I was, 
I left France just probably two months before, or even a month before. Um, so I did Christmas just, I think COVID hit that February. So I was in, I was in France probably a month before COVID, COVID started. So I was lucky enough just to see my parents that Christmas before. Um, and now how it's just impacted us is, you know, we've just been FaceTiming lots. I've got two children where, you know, my grandparents, my parents say, oh, we need to see them every week. So, you know, it's just lots of FaceTime. Um, trying to keep it that way, to be honest. Has this period of time had an impact on you professionally in the way that you um, see your role in hospitality? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone needs to think completely different from from a – look, the way we built Lulu as well, we were, we were building a business during COVID. So, you know, the retail space was really one of those things that we had to make sure that in case we go through another lockdown, that that business could still be able to support the community, if that makes sense. Um, so 100% percent affected. It affected how, you, how we think and how we – we're going to build businesses for the next couple of years, I'd say. You mentioned some of the lessons that you've learned in the past is about how to manage kitchens and manage people. Um, what's some of the techniques and things that you do to create a safe workplace and one, one that creates career paths for people? Look, for me, I'm a strong believer. You know, for example, being a decline director is I don't want it. I don't want me to tell the chef this is the menu I want I want to work with them and want them to feel like they've fully owned the menu, if that makes sense. Nothing worse than having someone go, here's my recipe, go do it. As you walk away six months later, it's going to be a complete different recipe. So you want to give full ownership to the chef and you want, I want them to grow. I want them to take responsibility. I want them to feel like it's their place as well, just as much as mine, if that makes sense. So for me, that's probably I want people to flourish. I want them to feel like they've got the rights to do what they want to do. Obviously, with guidelines and a bit of mentoring, that that works really well. Um, but I just feel like whenever you've gone in and said, this is how I want things done, blah, blah, it just never becomes that. People don't feel like they've owned it. You've uh, got family history uh, in the hospitality industry with your father and also your brother, Samelia, as well. Um, what do you love about what you do? To be honest, I think the, the people piece, you know, being around the people who have the same passion, I think that would be the first one. And the second one for me is just enjoyment of, you know, seeing people enjoying the food that you've done or the experience you've given them. I think those would be my two biggest ones. Obviously, I love food and, you know, obviously wine and stuff like that. Obviously, that's the, probably the third one. Who doesn't? But I think, you know, those two first ones would be the, the probably the biggest ones, hence why I'm still, you know, a chef, um, you know, after 25 years, I'd say. <laughs> You've opened uh, Lulu at a time where everything is opening up and there's a lot more optimism. What, what do you hope to see and, and have um, in 2022? Oh, a bit more certainty of what's going on in the world. <laughs> I think, um, you know, COVID, COVID will always bring a few curveballs, especially, you know, at the moment we've had, you know, chefs who they're out getting tested because they've, you know, they're feeling sick or unwell. So that's just not helpful at the moment. So a bit more certainty in the next six months would be a bit better, a bit nicer. <laughs> and we could plan better. When the... Uh You've got the dining room full there on Lavender Bay. Um, what's it going to feel like? What, what what are you hoping for from Lulu? Look, I'm hoping for um, 
I think, you know, you'd, you'd want to step back and just see people enjoying themselves. People laughing, people just sharing a moment with their friends or loved ones or whatever it is. But I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is people having a great time and just an experience. And they go, oh, this, this is great. And sort of feels like, you're, you know, you're traveling in France, but just in, in your local area. Well, it sounds amazing, and uh, we all look forward to travelling in France again uh, soon. Uh, Sebastian, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Uh, Please keep in touch. Good luck, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. Have a good day. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.